0: Sometimes you need to take control to make a difference. That's why with FlexPath from Capella University, you're in control. Set your own deadlines and leverage your experience to move at a pace that works for you. Discover a different way forward at capella.edu. Great news. For a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right. One month free with any new line. This exclusive offer is only available at select Spectrum stores. So stop by today.
2: Welcome back to the Exxon, everyone. I am Rob McConnell. We're coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. If you'd like to give us a call, 1-800-610-7035. If you'd like to send an email, exxon at TV.com On MSN Messenger, Exxon Radio TV. And if you'd like to find out more about the Exxon Radio Show and the Exxon TV channel, visit us at www.xzbn.net and X. Ex- ZoneTVChannel.com. My guest this hour is Dr. Katie Mack, and she is a theoretical physicist exploring a range of questions in cosmology, the study of the universe from beginning to end. She currently holds a position of assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State University, where she is also a member of the Leadership and Public Science Cluster. Throughout her career, she has studied dark matter, the early universe, galaxy formation, black holes, cosmic strings, and the ultimate fate of the cosmos. Alongside her academic research, she is an internationally recognized writer and communicator. She has been published in a number of popular outlets, such as Scientific American, Slate, Sky and Telescope, and Cosmos Magazine, where she is a columnist, and she has recently been named TED2020 Fellow. You can find her on Twitter all of the time at at Astro Katie. Joining me now is Dr. Katie Mack. And Dr. Mack, welcome to the Exxon.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
2: Uh, first of all, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what exactly is a theoretical astrophysicist?
1: Yeah, so astrophysics is the study of the cosmos of, of uh, objects in space, basically. Stars, galaxies, uh, planets, all of all of the, uh, the things out there. Mm-hmm. And the theoretical part is that I don't do observations and I don't do experiments, um, but I look at equations, I look at uh, results, I uh, write a lot of code, and I um, I try and address those questions um, other than by actually taking the data myself.
2: I understand you have a very uh, significant presence on Twitter. Tell me about that.
1: Um, yeah, Twitter is a surprisingly great uh medium for talking about science Mm -hmm. Uh, it turns out that it's very helpful to be able to directly discuss and engage with people who are not in academia who are not scientists Um, and i you know i talk about physics and astronomy Mm -hmm. i talk about academia about um, a a whole range of other topics in science and and just life and it seems to it seems to be a really nice uh, way to sort of build a community and and uh, get to know lots of people.
2: Do you find that more and more people are showing an interest in uh, astrophysics, the universe, the beginning, the end, than let's say 20, 30 years ago?
1: Uh, it's hard to say. Um, I haven't been around too terribly long, so I, I can't make too many direct comparisons about that. But um, I I do think that, that there is a sort of basic desire among people everywhere to understand our cosmos to understand where we came from and where we're going and i think that most people if you if you give them a chance to explore that Mm -hmm. they'll be interested i think it's something that you know my job as a science communicator gets very easy when i get to talk about space and black holes and the big bang and things like that
2: so let me ask you a very simple question where did we come from and when did it all begin
1: well um (laughs) It all began around 13.8 billion years ago, right. as far as we can tell, and uh, we we know that in the very beginning um, there was a the universe was hot and dense and in some sense smaller than it is today. That's the Big Bang theory, the idea right. that that um, you know right now the universe is expanding. If you take that expansion, dial it back, then the universe was compressed in the past and was hotter and denser and Uh, We can we can study that time very directly because we can see the afterglow of the Big Bang. Um, The place where things get a little bit uncertain are within the first you know tiny tiny fraction of a second. We don't know exactly where that hot dense kind of primordial soup came from. We have some ideas about what could have uh, produced that early hot stage. Right. And um, you know I can I can get into those if you're interested, but we're, we are very sure that the universe was hot and dense and, uh, and has been expanding. Um, exactly what happened at the very, very, very beginning is still something that we're, we have lots of theories about and we're trying to uh, better understand.
2: I understand you've just uh, written a new book entitled The End of Everything. That's yes. a scary title coming from an <laughs> astrophysicist, ma'am.
1: Um yeah well it's a it really is about the end of everything it's a it's a it's literal um it's about how the universe will come to an end sometime in the future uh, it's it goes through several possibilities for what we think might happen um mm-hmm. whereby we i mean cosmologists and physicists people who are studying these topics so it it outlines a few possibilities and uh, what the evidence for or against those things are and how we can study that question, how we can learn something about our, our far distant future in the cosmos.
2: How many different models do you use when you and your fellow scientists go out and say, all right, let's, let's take a look at how this all could end? Is there one specific model or do you use many different models with different scenarios?
1: There are there are several different possibilities um, there's there's one that's kind of the most accepted idea mm-hmm. but in the book I go through five different possibilities um, just to, to give a range of what people have been talking about what what the theory the range of theories are that fit the data as it, as it stands today um, and uh, where some new interesting ideas are, are coming from so the the one idea that seems to be the most accepted right now is uh, hypothesizes that, you know, right now the, the universe is expanding and it's going mm-hmm. to continue to expand and it's actually expanding faster and faster all the time. And because of that, everything will get farther apart. Uh, the universe will get colder and w- more diffuse and darker over time. And after a while it'll just, there'll just be very little left. Everything will kind of fade away. And that's, that's called the heat death. And that seems to be the one that uh, is most accepted or most ex- expected, maybe because it fits the data. It's a it's a clear extrapolation from what's happening now, and it doesn't require a whole lot of sort of new ideas to come in uh, to to get that to work. But you know, we we there are there are other possibilities that people talk about quite seriously that fit the data right now, and um, some of them are much more dramatic than a, just a kind of fading away.
2: It seems as if. From nothing we came to nothing we go.
1: Well, I mean, we don't know exactly what we came from. I mean, there right. are there are hypotheses about about really coming from nothing, but um, but that part's a, a little bit hazy. There, we may have come from a universe that was already existing, and we kind of branched out from that. That's a possibility. It's possible that, uh, that our universe is cyclic, that there's, there was a universe before ours that ended, at, uh, and then we had a, our Big Bang, and then there could be another cycle in the future after our universe ends. The, that's a, a still very much an open question.
2: After somebody reads your book, what do you want your reader to, to end up learning? And, and how do you hope that your words will change their life?
1: Um, well, the the first question is easier to answer. I I hope that uh, when people read my book, they learn a little bit about how our universe works, what we know about mm-hmm. our cosmos. I, so, in or, in order to set the stage for all these cosmic apocalypses, I um, I describe a lot of. What we currently know about the cosmos and how we're learning it, how we can how we can see the Big Bang directly by looking at this afterglow light that's still in the cosmos. Um, I talk about how we measure the universe, how we figure out what distant galaxies are doing. Uh, I talk about stars and black holes and um, how galaxies come together. There's there's a lot of information in there, and then uh, you know I also go into what we're learning about the end and what these possibilities are. So I hope that. You know, after reading the book, you come away with a better understanding of how we fit into the universe, you know, our place in this larger cosmos and, um, you know, kind of a different perspective on uh, on existence, perhaps. And and that that touches on the second question you had. I I, I hope that, you know, when I when I talk about cosmology, when I talk about the, the cosmos and our past and our future, a lot of what I'm hoping to do is to help people gain a different perspective to be able to step away from daily life and and the uh, concerns of the moment and really take that that time to sort of think about that big picture and consider ourselves as residents of this this grand, beautiful cosmos um, where we may only exist for a short time, but uh, it's it's an incredible thing that we can learn about it. We can see so much of what's going on in the cosmos, and and we can find our origins and perhaps our our destiny. And I think that's I think that's a wonderful thing. And I think that that we should all have the chance to take that time to to really contemplate our place in this
2: universe. Are we alone in this universe as a well, human d- species?
1: Right. Uh, we don't know. Um, I I don't think that uh, that. Earth is the one single place in the universe where life uh, began. I think that that's quite a um, that would be quite a leap to say that we're that special. We know that there are planets um, around most stars in the in the Milky Way galaxy. We know that uh, planets, rocky planets uh, like our own, that that might be the right distance from the sun from their own suns to have liquid water on the surface. We know that those are not terribly rare. Right. Um, that We know that, that such planets, which we would call habitable, although we don't know if they're actually inhabited or not, um, we know that those are reasonably common in, in the Milky Way galaxy. And, and we also know that there are places, even in our solar system, where the conditions we think uh, were necessary for life to begin on Earth may have at one point existed in those places. You know, Mars at some point had liquid water on the surface. Mm-hmm. There are moons of the gas giants in the outer solar system that have liquid water oceans underneath their surfaces and even hydrothermal vents. So we know that that the kinds of physical conditions that led to life on Earth probably exist elsewhere. Whether or not life did ever uh, come up in other places, we don't know, although I think it's very likely. And whether or not that life evolved into something that we would recognize as alive or intelligent, you know, other than just some kind of microbe, that we don't know, and that's a lot less certain. I think that um, most astronomers would bet very strongly that there is other life in the universe somewhere. Whether or not there's intelligent life that wants to communicate with us, that's mm-hmm. that's a lot uh, a much more uncertain question.
2: How do you as a as an astrophysicist look at Today's space race, getting back to the moon, getting to Mars, is this an essential part of our evolution in in finding Um, out the answers to the many questions that theoretical astrophysicists like yourself are trying to, you know, get answered?
1: Well, I think that uh, a lot of the kinds of questions that can be answered by, Mm -hmm. you know, personally going to the moon or Mars are questions that could also be answered by robotic missions. I think that um, the, the drive for humans to walk around on another world is a strong one and, and may have more to do with human nature than with science in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways. There are certainly things that we will learn more easily that there, there are ways we can explore um, more easily and and more efficiently by going in person. Um, But I think that what drives us to you know, try to walk around on other planets is is really more a sense of adventure right. than um, than specifically science necessarily. I think I think it's a mix of both. But I think if, if the if our only concern was gathering the best science, um, there would be uh, you know we would we would sure. probably put much more uh, investment into robotic missions. All right, than doctor, we've got to take missions. our
2: break. Please stand by. ExoNation, I guess this hour is Doctor Katie Mack. Her website is we will both be back on the other side of this break don't go away eat it up, eat it up.
0: It's the terror of knowing what this world is about Our whole universe was in a hot dense state Then, nearly 14 billion years ago expansion started wait the earth began to cool the autotrophs began to drool. Neanderthals developed tools we built a wall we built the pyramids math science history unraveling the mystery that started with a big bang hey! since the dawn of man is really not that long as every galaxy was formed in less time than it takes to sing this song a fraction of a second and the elements were made the biking stood up straight the dinosaurs all met their fate they tried to leap but they were late, and they all died they their on the ocean wouldn't be motion by the same
2: and welcome back everyone this is the exon dr Katie Mac is our special guest, and she is a theoretical physicist. Her website is Um You know, talking about uh, the Big Bang, one of the most popular shows on television these days, including in reruns, is the Big Bang, which is based amongst a group of scientists. Have you watched the show yourself?
1: Yeah, I've uh, I've watched it. I actually, um, listening to the theme song just now, the, the first bit of the theme song is... Is a very clear description of the Big Bang Theory. Um, so, you know, the whole universe was in a hot, dense state. Then, nearly fourteen billion years ago, expansion started. Right. That part yeah. is completely accurate. Son of a gun! <laughs> I use it in my classes to uh, to explain uh, what we mean when we say the Big Bang Theory.
2: Taking the nit, the title of your book, which is "The End of Everything," where is your book available, Doctor?
1: Uh, anywhere books are sold really you can get Excellent. it at um, bookstores buy it online it's an mm-hmm. ebook it's an audiobook um, and uh, it's, it's being published in many different places so uh, just wherever you like to buy books check it out
2: how will we know if the world is coming to an end what would be some of the signs the the, the changes that that we as humans would notice
1: so do you mean world or do you mean universe because there are different answers
2: all right. Let's go with you. Let's go with the world first, and then go to the universe.
1: Okay. Well, the the world is um, the world's days are numbered. Uh, I'm afraid. So we know that the sun is evolving. It's um, aging, and the way that it evolves is it's going to it's going to over over several billion years um, puff up and become a red giant star. Get become a much larger uh, star, and as it begins that process. Um, it'll things will get hotter here on earth and uh by around a billion years from now the oceans of the earth will boil away it will be it will be so hot on the surface of the earth that uh, you will not be able to have liquid water on the surface of the earth and so um by that point we should probably be somewhere else if we uh, if humans still exist by then we should probably find a new place to live um but then after after that after the surface is no longer inhabitable um There'll be a period where it's just getting hotter and hotter, and the sun, as it expands, will engulf v- uh, Mercury and Venus, the, the two inner planets. And then it's it's unclear whether the Earth will spiral into the sun at that point, or whether there'll be it'll take a little while longer. the The sun will blow off its outer layers of atmosphere, and then at that point probably the the earth will spiral into the sun. So um, you know the the sort of final stages of habitability of the earth will be noticeable by the brightening of the sun really. so that's that's where we'll we'll get that sign.
2: Would there be any way to avoid this total cataclysmic event?
1: Uh, I don't know of any. Um, I think you know if there were a way to move the Earth, out in its orbit, um, then you could keep it in the sort of habitable zone of the, of the, uh, uh, solar system as, right. as the sun gets hotter, but, or not hotter exactly, but brighter. Um, but, uh, it's it pretty much, we'll, we'll probably just have to live
2: somewhere else at that point. Well, this is a great show. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I have, I have
1: faith that, that uh, if, if humans or, or some other kind of thinking creatures are still around in a billion mm-hmm. years, that's enough time to find a way to, to live in space or to live on other planets. Oh, so, I, I think that that's totally reasonable
2: expectation. So, so we're talking in the very far future when it comes to, as we humans look at time, but as I would imagine you as a theoretical astrophysicist looks at that, that's you know in a matter of minutes.
1: Yeah, that's yeah. I mean, the the universe has been around for about 13.8 billion years, so one billion years in that time is pretty is pretty short, and um, especially when we think about sort of the evolution of the galaxies and, mm-hmm. and the evolution of the cosmos as a whole, uh, a billion years is not not a huge amount of time.
0: But uh, great news for a limited time, you can get one month free of Spectrum Mobile service. That's right, one month free with any new line. The we're going family style deal because I want a bite of your Big Mac and I need some of your Quarter Pounder. I'll try your fillet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. With prices soaring at the pump, filling up can be stressful. That's why Discover has your back with cash back. Use Discover to earn five percent cash back at gas stations and Target now through June on up to $1,500 in purchases when you activate. We know every dollar matters right now, but you can count on us. Get up to $75 cash back this quarter with your Discover It card. Limitations apply. Learn more at discover.com slash rewards. Um,
1: you know, I, I understand that uh, that... You know it it is a a large amount of time for the the evolution of a species and and technology. So I think that I think that things could happen that things could be very, very different by then.
2: How do you and your fellow scientists um, calculate the beginning of of the universe?
1: Well, yeah, so that's um mostly by looking at the way that the universe is expanding now mm-hmm. and kind of dialing it back. so, we, when we look out into the cosmos, when we look at very distant galaxies, we see that they're all moving away from us right. and it's not because we're unpopular, it's because the whole universe is getting bigger. And so the spaces between all galaxies are, those spaces are getting bigger. And so we can just kind of, kind of reverse that based on what we know about how that expansion has, mm-hmm. has been changing over time. And that gives us a date in the past, you know, a sort of number of years ago where everything would have been kind of on top of everything else. And that, that tells us when uh, when the Big Bang would have occurred.
2: Uh, uh, something that we hear about these days uh, when listening to science, um, you know, science people who talk about the galaxy, the universe, is, is dark matter. Can you explain to us what that is?
1: Sure. Um, it's actually what most of my uh, academic research is about. So uh, it's a topic that's very dear to my heart. So dark matter is a kind of matter. So matter is anything that has mass, like, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, our atoms and molecules are are matter. Um, The stuff we're made of is matter. Uh, So it's a kind of matter. It has mass, but it seems to be totally invisible. And um, if it's invisible, that means it also doesn't it, it doesn't interact with light. But that means it also you also can't touch it because. It turns out when you're trying to touch something, actually, what you're doing is you're pushing the electrons in your hand against the electrons in the thing you're trying to touch, and it's really electrostatic repulsion that that makes you feel that that thing is solid. And if if dark matter is something that doesn't deal with light, it doesn't deal with electromagnetism, so it does it. You can't feel it. It's not. It doesn't feel solid, even though it has mass. And that's an, a counterintuitive thing. But it would be something that that would pass right through you, even though it has mass. And the reason that we think it's out there, even though we can't see it, we can't touch it, and we haven't caught it in a uh, in a detector yet, is because um, when we look out into the cosmos, when we look at the way that galaxies move around, when we look at how stars move around galaxies, they seem to be responding to the gravitational pull of something we can't see. And um, we can map out where that stuff has to be. And we can see that every galaxy seems to be embedded in a clump of dark matter and clusters of galaxies are in these clumps of dark matter. And we have other indirect evidence for the existence of this stuff. It's not just, you know, you can't really just tweak gravity and make it all work out. There really is, does seem to be some stuff that's just invisible, but it's regular matter other than that. Um, and uh, And yeah, it seems to be much more uh, prevalent than regular matter. So something like 80 or 85% of the matter in the universe is dark matter that's invisible stuff.
2: So am I correct in, in understanding that what we perceive to be solid is not solid?
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by solid, really. Um, and so you know every every solid thing that you can think of is made of of atoms and molecules and um and those are held together by atomic bonds and molecular bonds and right. and those are are held you know those are governed by electromagnetism and and you know the forces between electrons and protons and all of that so you know there is there are particles there's kind of empty space between particles but I mean, for all practical purposes, something that's solid is solid. It's just that when you're trying to touch something, the, the mechanism by which you touch something, by, the, by which something feels solid to you, is, is that electric kind of repulsion between the stuff of you and the stuff of the thing you're touching.
2: So is that what differentiates the, the black matter from what we can physically touch?
1: Yeah, dark, so dark matter doesn't seem to do that that repulsion, okay. um, and regular matter does. And so that that's kind of that and, you know, not being able to see the mm-hmm. dark matter. that That's what makes it
2: different. You also talk about um, vacuum decay. What yeah. is that? <laughs>
1: um, so vacuum decay is one of the possibilities for the end of the universe that I talk about in the book. And it's, uh, it's the one that's kind of the most, the most uh, interesting to me as a physicist, it's Mm -hmm. also a little bit hard to explain, because um, it comes out of some kind of complicated ideas in theoretical physics, but uh, it's basically the idea that there's a kind of instability built into our universe, and that instability is uh, vulnerable to a kind of quantum event happening somewhere in space that could create a bubble of a different kind of space that could expand through the universe and sort of destroy everything. And this is an idea that's been around for a while and, and has gained more prominence recently. And it's not something that anybody that you should worry about. Um, I hear from a lot of people that they, they learn about the possibility of vacuum decay and they get very, very concerned. Um, and there are lots of reasons why we shouldn't worry about it. Um, but it is a sort of thing where if it's possible, if it can happen, then we'd, we wouldn't be able to predict exactly when it would happen. We can get an idea of, it would roughly, you know, it probably happen many, 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 many years in the future. We can't say for sure that it wouldn't happen right away, but we we can be reasonably confident that it wouldn't. Um, and if it did happen, we wouldn't see it coming. We wouldn't really feel it. We wouldn't mm-hmm. notice it. It would just kind of erase the universe. And uh, that's that's a very dramatic and um, and slightly, you know, disturbing kind of end. And uh, and so I, I talk about it in the book and. It's it's one of the, the most interesting uh, possibilities that I think out there.
2: We've had a number of people who dabble in science or are, are scientists who 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 actually say that they believe, based on quantum physics, that there is more than the that there are multiple dimensions, multiple universes sharing the same space and time as we do.
1: Um do you mean the many worlds hypothesis of yes. quantum mechanics? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's a that's an interesting idea and um <clears throat> it's one that uh that there are many physicists who who take it seriously but the way the 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 idea behind the many worlds hypothesis is that um every time a quantum event happens. So by quantum event I mean, you know, sometimes uh, when you try and measure where a particle is, you won't get you you might get different answers um you know if you do the measurement several times uh with this, uh, particles arranged in the same way so there's some quantum uncertainty in uh, in base in particle physics and so uh if there's if there are two options for a measurement and it involves these subatomic particles then the idea behind many worlds is that you know the chance of measuring either of these results is 50/50 which means that um in in this universe we measure it you know the particle goes left then then there's a another universe that branches off of ours in which the particle goes right, um, and so every time something happens, there would be this sort of splitting of the universe into two new universes, um, and that's uh, there's you know I, I find it to be a, a strange idea that that you know you would just keep producing more and more universes mm-hmm. all the time in that way, but mathematically there's something to be said for it, but the interesting the interesting, you know, the, the important thing about it is that it would be something where once that split occurs, it's impossible to uh, to interact with the other universes that branch off. There would be a, a complete disruption. So it's not like you. It's not like that means that we can, you know, travel between parallel universes or anything like that. It, it's just it's kind of a, a way of mathematically accounting for quantum probabilities.
2: If this is just a mathematical calculation, how do we know that the actual mathematical equation works out to be this hypothetical or, or theory, uh, you know, theoretical. Uh, um,
1: well, I mean, it,
2: the... listen, I'm, I've got to take a break here. My producer okay. just uh, said, give me, uh, we have to take this break. So stand by okay. XO Our guest this hour is, uh, let me see here, is Dr. Katie Mack. And her website is astrokatie.com We'll be back on the other side of this break as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast entrance studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. Welcome back, everyone. Dr. Katie Mack is my guest this hour. Her website is astrokatie.com. And uh, Dr. Mack is a theoretical astrophysicist exploring a range of questions in cosmology, the study of the universe from beginning to end. She currently holds a position as a uh, assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State University, where she is also a member of the Leadership in Public Science Cluster. Throughout her career, she has studied dark matter, an early universe, the galaxy formation, black holes, cosmic strings, and the ultimate fate of the cosmos. Alongside her academic research, she is an internationally recognized writer and communicator. She has been published in a number of popular outlets such as Scientific American, Slate, Sky and Telescope, and Cosmos Magazine, where she is a columnist. And she has recently been named a TED 2020 Fellow. You can find her on Twitter as at AstroKatie, and once again, her website is com. Again, Doctor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Great pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: Okay. Um, something else I understand you're... Uh, th- all right. The, the question that I asked before we went to the break was, mm-hmm. if all these... They're not facts, and yet they are facts.
1: hmm
2: if they're just based on mathematical calculations, mm. what would happen if the mathematical equation that we think is right isn't? What happens if Einstein was wrong and in well, a few years from now, things change?
1: Well, you know, this is what, we're, we're, this is what physics is all about. We take our mathematical models, so mm-hmm. we... We try and build a mathematical model of the universe, of uh, of whatever physical process we're studying. We right. try and figure out how what kinds of equations could describe what's happening physically, and then we test that model. So we we take more data, we see if it if still fits the mathematical model. If it doesn't, we have to tweak the model, and we continue that process. Um, with Einstein, you know the the mathematical equations he wrote down. Uh, in 1905 and 1915, to to describe space, time, and and gravity, those equations still work. You know, every time we've taken data about gravity or about um, you know how space and time interact with each other, mm-hmm. those the it still matches Einstein's equations. So we're actually a little frustrated right now because we're we're pretty sure that there will be something that will disagree with that at some point. There, there's got to be some some new model that, that can replace, you know, give the same answers in the regions we've tested, but in some new, uh, some new more extreme conditions should give a different answer than what Einstein's equation would, would say. Uh, but we haven't found it yet. And we really need to find that place where the data no longer matches the equations in order to make progress. So we're always looking for that place where the data and the equations stop agreeing. That's that's how we build new theories, and that's how we figure out how physics works. And that's how we progress in our theories.
2: So, how do you go about looking for this new mathematical equation? And when it is found, how is it going to change everything?
1: Well, what we're doing mostly is uh, from the from the data side. So we're trying mm-hmm. to take more data in more extreme conditions. So, we're uh, we've only recently begun to to learn about the the extreme gravitational conditions around black holes and we've done that in a few different ways one by building instruments that can can feel the vibration of space and time when uh, when black holes are colliding with each other in the distant universe so when two black holes collide they send a ripple through space and we can we can pick that up now with experiments uh, called ligo and virgo these are gravitational wave detectors and that's that's a way to test Einstein's theories and see if they really describe the space time around a black hole. And so far, they do. Um, so we haven't found the crack there yet. Um, we've also been uh, we've also been studying the early universe. We've been uh, taking data about the extreme conditions in in the beginning of the universe and trying to figure out uh, different you know how that might affect our particle physics models and we haven't found the we haven't found the error there yet either like that still matches um the the uh, theories that we have but we're still looking so we're and we we use experiments like the large hadron collider at cern where we collide particles together at extremely high energies and we hope to find something in the debris that that doesn't match what we expected so far again uh that's there's nothing really super definitive that's that's different but there are places where we know that something is different so we know that that dark matter is not something that's included in our standard model of particle physics and so that means that if we could understand more about dark matter if we knew mm-hmm. what that was that might point the way to the next theory and so that's one of the reasons we're so keen to figure out what dark matter is and to to try to maybe detect it in a detector or or look at something about how it interacts in space. So that's one of the ways that we're looking. We're also trying to understand dark energy, which is a different phenomenon. Dark energy is something that's making the universe expand faster and faster. And that also is not included in our in our theories as mm-hmm. something that we knew about already. So we're trying to figure out what that is and how that fits into the bigger picture. So by by examining these things that we're pretty sure don't fit into our current models, we're hoping to find... Uh, where we can adjust the current models or, or replace them uh, where everything would kind of fit together and make sense.
2: How will theoretical, uh, theoretical astrophysics help the common person, the man on the street? The <laughs> well, man, you know, yeah. the guy who goes to work from 9 to 5, he, he works in an office tower somewhere. Oh, well, mm-hmm. this is prior to COVID-19, of course. Sure. Or, or whatever. How will this help us? The people who aren't scientists, mm-hmm. who who really, you know, yeah, the sun comes up, it goes down. We're going to be dead by the time that the that uh, everything comes to an end, according to sure. the numbers that we've talked about here. So why should we have any interest in it?
1: In the end of the universe, or no, in no, theoretical in, physics in general,
2: in physics in general.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, um, the thing about about fundamental physics, the thing about theoretical physics, is we don't really know where it's going to take us when. Uh, when, the, when the ideas behind quantum mechanics were first being put together, we didn't know that we would be using those to make microchips and flash memory and all of the extra electronics we have now. We didn't know that, that we'd be making scanning electron uh, tunneling microscopes. We didn't know that we would be using positrons, uh, antimatter particles, to do medical imaging. We just knew that there were weird things out there in space mm-hmm. and there were weird things in our particle experiments and we needed to explain them. And now we have all these amazing technologies. When, we, when Einstein was working out his equations of general relativity and special relativity, you know he thought he was talking about extreme conditions in space, but it turns out now everybody in their pocket has a machine that connects with GPS satellites and those wouldn't work without uh, understanding relativity. Um, that's you know we have to factor in Einstein's relativity in order to have uh, satellite positioning. So there are a lot of things where we're pretty, we, we don't know what, what the benefit will be. But based on past experience, theoretical physics has very much more than paid for itself in terms of uh, new technologies and advancements in, um, in how we, you know, live our lives. Um, but from my perspective, my interest in it, you know, I... I I have to. I have to assume that that some kind, something like that might come out of what we're doing, and and I know that even even now um, there are technologies we're using to do things like gravitational wave detection that are that are branching out and going into other industries. Um, but for me, I'm I think that it's it's more about human curiosity. I think that we as as humans we want to understand the universe we live in, we want to understand where we came from and where we're going. And that's, that's just human nature. That's our innate curiosity. I think it's one of the best things about being human is that we do care, we do have an interest in what goes on around us the same way we have an interest in art and music. um, And, you know, and philosophy, you know, these are things that, that are just part of human nature that we appreciate those things that they're part of what make what you know, makes life living is, is being able to have these, these uh, flights of fancy and curiosities and, and being able to explore and increase our knowledge. So, you know, I, I don't know what the practical applications of anything will be, but I do think that these kinds of explorations are are just part of what we, we feel compelled to do as, as humans.
2: As a theoretical astrophysicist, hmm is part of what you're doing, either consciously or subconsciously, either proving or disproving the God factor?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't think it has anything to do with that. Well, I think that you know,
2: you know what, you, as far as I understand, you know, yeah, you know, according to science, the Bible was wrong when it comes to the seven days of creation.
1: Well, I mean the the Bible is a very old document that right. um, that I I don't think I mean. I have something of a religious education, and and uh, from mm. my my perspective, I don't think the Bible was ever uh, meant to be a literal uh, statement of facts and, and a history book. I think there's uh, there's uh, there are much deeper and more interesting stories in there than than an accounting of um, of literal events. But you know, that's that's just my perspective on the Bible. I know that people have different perspectives on on religious yeah. texts, but in my in my work, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say anything about, uh, about people's personal beliefs. I'm, I'm just looking at data and trying to learn something about the cosmos. And if there are religious beliefs that give people, uh, different ideas about, uh, the cosmos, you know, that's, people are, are welcome to, to believe what, what, you know, what works for them. But, uh, but if you want the scientific picture, mm-hmm. we, we have a, a method for for figuring that out and and I find that that method to be very useful for the kind of data I'm trying to get and the kind of information I'm trying to get but I don't I don't try and interact with uh, with theology in my in my work
2: I, I do know for a fact that there are many people even in today's society who believe that science is way overstepping its authority when it comes to trying to understand and basically saying listen the book Bible is nothing but a book. It's science fiction. Uh, let's get on with reality. I, I just wanted to ask you your opinion. That's all. Uh, there is something I know that you're very excited about, and that's the concept of cosmic dawn and re-ion- reionization. Can you share mm-hmm. what that is with us?
1: Yeah, it's something I've worked on in my research. It's uh, the the time in the universe when the first stars and galaxies were beginning to shine, mm-hmm. and um, it's, it's uh, it was within the first you know billion years or so of the universe. So very early on, uh, galaxies began to form and stars formed within them, and uh, the universe went from being a dark place to a bright one. And there's um, it's an interesting time in the cosmos because we're we're trying to understand how those first galaxies formed, how those first stars formed, and we are currently developing new telescopes that can start to look at some of those first galaxies. So the, the James Webb Space Telescope, which we'll be launching in the next few years, is one that uh, will be looking at some of the early galaxies, and there's a, a set of radio telescopes called the Square Kilometer Array that will be looking at the the hydrogen gas from which those first galaxies and stars were forming, and we're, we're just at the point of being able to detect that, you know that the the beginning of of the the dawn of starlight in the universe, I think that's a beautiful thing, and I think it's ah uh, it's amazing what we're going to be able to see.
2: But what will we be able to do with this knowledge?
1: well, we'll we'll have a better understanding of where we came from, you know where where galaxies right. came from, where stars came from. We'll have a better picture of the story of the universe. There are a lot of gaps in our understanding of the of the cosmos, and we'll be starting to fill some of those in. So uh, as, as a an astrophysicist, I find this to be a very exciting prospect because you know we want to know where we came from. We want to know how how it all fits together and how it works. And so we're we're getting more data. We're learning about that now.
2: All right, stand by. We've got to take our final break. And exclamation! Our guest this hour is Dr. Katie Mack. Her website is astrokatie.com, and she can always be found on Twitter. Her Twitter feed, er, her Twitter is at Astro Katie will be back on the other side of this uh, this break as we wrap up this hour here in the Exxon from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. My hands wet on the wheel. There's a voice in my head that drives my ear. And welcome back. This is the X I am Rob McConnell coming to you from our broadcast center and studios in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. Our website is TV.com And for the X zone TV channel on Simul TV, xonetvchannel.com. If you'd like to send me an email, Exxon at X-Zone TV.com. And, um, for all the shows that we have available for you, 24-7, 365 on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit that site at xzbn.net. Dr. Katie Mack is our guest. AstroKatie.com is her website and on Twitter at AstroKatie. When you were writing your book, Doctor, The End mm-hmm. of Everything, what was the what was what was the inspiration for writing a book that talks about the end of everything?
1: Um, you know, I've always been interested in the question of where we came from and where we're going. That's uh, that's just part of my curiosity about the universe. But uh, specifically, you know, I'd, I'd been giving a lot of public lectures about things like dark matter and dark energy. And mm-hmm. I noticed that when I was talking about the end of the universe, people would, would really respond well to that part of the lecture. People were very excited and curious about these, these topics because... I think people don't hear that much about it. There are a lot of books about the beginning of the universe. There's a lot of discussion about the Big Bang. But people don't hear that much about the end. There aren't very many books about the end of the universe. And so I thought it would be an interesting topic to dig into. I thought it would be fun to to research what the possibilities are and um, and what we're learning about them. And it was also something that seemed like a, a nice vehicle for talking about a lot of my favorite topics in cosmology and in astronomy.
2: When you're out giving lectures, uh, what are some of the questions that you get asked by by the people who attend?
1: Oh, all sorts of questions. Um, I get asked a lot about dark matter. A lot mm-hmm. of people hear about dark matter and dark energy, and because of the, because a lot of the the information we have about dark matter and dark energy sounds very indirect. If you're um, if you're not used to dealing with that kind of data, a lot of people say, "Oh, isn't that just a fudge factor? Aren't you just you know getting the math wrong and it's not really out there?" and so I have to I have to explain um, what the evidence is and how we get it and why we why we build these things into our models. Uh, so I get that those questions a lot. I just get a lot of questions also about um, you know about the the Big Bang and mm-hmm. um, how we know about that and what we know about what could have come before it if 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 that's if that's possible. I do get a lot of questions about aliens. Um, everybody wants to know if we're alone in the universe well, and that's... I, mean, I was going uh, to go
2: there and then I figured, no, no, this lady is, <laughs> not, is not going to go there. But let me ask you. Sure. Do you think that this planet is being visited by extraterrestrials from other planets?
1: No, I don't think so. You know what? I
2: agree with you. Yeah. I really do. You know, uh, I've been doing this show for 30 years now. hmm And over the years, there has been not one shred of evidence to substantiate any claim whatsoever that this planet is being visited. There's a lot of hype. The Internet certainly has spawned a vast following of those who really believe, you know, the alien abductions, Mm -hmm. uh, everything from alien abductions to Bigfoot. And Mm -hmm. and after 30 years, you know, people say, Rob, why are you such a skeptic? (laughs) It's not, I'm a skeptic, doctor. I want Mm -hmm. to believe. Sure. But show me the proof. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah. That, do you remember that Wendy's commercial? Where's the beef?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. I, and you know, I I grew up watching the X Files, and Me too. Uh, I thought, you know, I wanted to believe in in that stuff too. I thought it would be awesome. But you know, we have we have really amazing uh, recording devices carrying around in our pockets all the time yeah. these days, and and there's still, you know, we don't have solid evidence. Like there are lots of sightings here and there. There are yeah. lots of little grainy photographs and things mm-hmm. like that, but. Yeah, you'd think that there'd be something more solid if there was actually anything really going on.
2: Do you know, uh, there was a study done, and there are less photos now being taken of so-called UFOs than before. Hmm. We all carried these high-definition cameras in our cell phones. Yeah. And also, yeah. I, one, of, one of my biggest kicks when I was uh, getting into this years and years ago was debunking the photographs. Mm -hmm. Like, my goodness, it was easy once the good software came (laughs) out, you know, layer on top layer. There you go. Yeah. Um, Why do you think people need, is there a connection between the work that you're doing where, you know, you yourself are intrigued by the beginning and the end? Do you Mm -hmm. think that subconsciously the people who believe in extraterrestrial existence that are visiting this planet want to believe because they're afraid of the end?
1: I think that I think it's a a little bit more subtle than that maybe. I think okay. that it's it's that we want there to be a a more a more coherent story. You right. know, we we don't like the idea of just existing in the universe in a in, with with no higher powers yeah. uh, guiding us. And I think that um that the idea that there are aliens coming around who are more intelligent than us who can who can, you know, control us or or influence us in some way is sort of bizarrely comforting because it would mean that there's there's some greater purpose, there's some kind of secret knowledge that you could have that would be um you know telling you something deep and meaningful about the universe and not you know rather than just you know we're kind of we're kind of out here right. we're on our own nothing particularly exciting is happening to us you know? Well, you know I think it's
2: maybe more that I even had somebody contact me the mm-hmm. other day saying rob I've got proof the aliens are here Mm-hmm. I said, you know, years ago I would have been dancing on the ceiling, but now it's, okay, tell me about it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
2: Rob, COVID-19. Right. I said, okay. Well, Rob, don't you get it? Um, I've been tested and I don't have it. No, Rob, it was the aliens who brought it here. Right. I said, how can you come up with that? Well, Rob, if you look at the timeline, it has everything to do with that sighting. Uh, that the Jets took the f- the photographs that I saw on CNN?
1: <sighs> yeah. Please. Well, we want to find patterns. We want to find order, you know, and it's yeah. uh, it's hard to think that things just happen, you know, and that we're kind of powerless to, to do a lot about what's going on around us sometimes.
2: But, you know, when you look at what we've done through the existence and the history that we know, Mm-hmm. This is an exciting place. There's yep. always something going on. And, and I admire the work that you do, Doctor. Thank you. Where we have to, I've always said that in order to prepare ourselves for a better future, we have to know our past. Mm-hmm. We have to know what we've done in history. And yeah. the work that you're doing with your fellow scientists are giving us the ability to go forward in a way that 20, 30 years ago we had no idea. So I want to thank you for the great work you're doing.
1: Well, oh, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's uh, I, I, you know, my part is very small, but I think it's a very important endeavor that that um, that we're exploring and we're trying to understand where we came from and maybe where we're going as well.
2: No matter how small your part is, when you take a a, a little eyedropper, add it to the ocean,
1: mm-hmm. that's
2: a major part. So thank you for your hard work.
1: Well, oh, thank you.
2: Um, tell us about your experiences, if any, at the uh, Large Hadron Collider.
1: Well, uh, I've I have visited CERN. I, I was I was fortunate enough to to be able to get a tour of the place. Uh, as a theorist, I don't often get to hang out around big experiments and um, and machines, but once in a while, I I get to I get to check them out, and um, and that's really cool. So, last year, I spent about ten days um, visiting both the theory group because there is a theory group at CERN as well, mm-hmm. um, where I was talking to people about various end of the end of the universe scenarios and. Doing calculations there, and then I was also able to go down underground and look at some of these uh, these particle colliders and and these amazing machines, and it was it was really incredible. I mean, the the complexity of of these instruments is is just astonishing. You know, you 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 have um, these these machines that are, you know, maybe 20 meters tall, 25 meters tall or something. And they've, they're completely decked out in electronic in you know, wires and and detectors. And, and uh, then there's, there's this 27 kilometer ring of, um, of, you know, pipe guided by magnets where the particles circulate around and then collide. And, and it's all, it's all got such amazing precision and on such an incredibly large scale. It's, it's really really something to see it. And, and the number of people it takes to do that work is, is just immense. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really, a, a an amazing achievement to, to bring that all together.
2: I think the world can take a, a lesson from the scientific community when it comes to people working together for the same cause, the common cause.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a very international yeah. field. it's one of the things I like about, about physics is that, you know, you really do get people from all over the world uh, working together, sharing ideas, um, you know, collaborating to just to, to find answers.
2: Do you feel that the governments of the world are putting and in, investing enough money into the work that you and your other scientists when it comes to uh, theoretical astrophysicism is that astrophysics?
1: <laughs> astrophysics, I yeah. think. Um, uh, I mean, I I feel like I'm I'm professionally obligated to say that they should give us more money. I agree um, with you.
2: I agree with you. I, I, uh, yeah.
1: You know, I mean, we we could certainly do more with more money, and and basic research like uh, like theoretical physics is it has such a, a high return on investment um, in terms of what comes out of it with new technologies and and so on. So I I do think it's worth um, putting more funding into. Because I think we could do a lot of good with that. But, you know, I don't think it should be the only thing we, we pay attention to. I think we should also put more funding into making sure people don't go hungry
2: and, ah, bingo. you know,
1: healthcare and things like that.
2: Yeah. Um, I'm one of the guys who, I guess I'd be a rare guy in this industry who says, you know what, we're spending way too much money on manned spaceflight. Hmm. You know, why don't we use more robotics? I agree with you. Why? do Do we really need to... Step foot on Mars? You know, like, I understand but, um, I understand it's, it's the exploration challenge. I understand yeah. that. But if you and your other astrophysicists don't have to use the machinery in order to do your work,
1: mm-hmm.
2: wouldn't a robot suffice in doing the work that they're planning on spending all this money on instead of, like you said, Spend, you know, send a robot up, but spend the money here on Earth causing the, helping solve the solutions to the problems that we're facing here as a species, a global species on a daily basis.
1: Well, I, th- I think they, these things can all be part of the same picture. Um, I, you know, I, I, I have a little bit of a conflict with this because I have I have applied for the NASA astronaut program. The, the oh. One time when I applied, I made the first cut. So I'm not, uh, I'm not entirely um, disinterested party in this uh in this endeavor i do think that that if we had more money for robotic exploration we could get a lot more science done right and um i know that a lot of um, a lot of space scientists are frustrated by how much the crude space program uh does get uh you know more funding in certain ways but i don't know i think i think there's there's usefulness to to human spaceflight um but maybe maybe the balance uh you know, is appropriately more on the robotic side, and and maybe should be even more on that side. I don't know, but um, but you know, personally, I still want to go out there, so I can't uh, I can't give it up entirely. Well,
2: I'll keep my fingers crossed for you, ma'am. Thank you, doctor. I want to thank you ever so much for joining us. It's been a delightful hour. Once again, I appreciate the work that you and other members of the theoretical astrophysicist uh, community do. You're a valuable thank you. part of science. And uh, please keep up the great work. And to you and yours, be safe in these very trying times.
1: Thank you. And, and you as well. And I've, I've really appreciated our conversation. It's Take been care great. of
2: yourself, doctor. We hope to have you back on in the future. Thank you. All right, explanation. If you'd like to get a copy of Dr. Max's book, The End of Everything, it's available at all fine bookstores, anywhere online as well, brick and mortar, if you can get out in these COVID situations. Her website is, all right, here it is. Astrokatie.com, and on Twitter at Astrokatie. Fascinating lady. I wish her luck. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break with the news at six and a half minutes past the top of the hour as the X-Zone continues in our boiling hot studios thanks to an engineering problem in Niagara, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell, don't go away.